Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. A recent settlement raises questions about the safety of menstrual products. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. Period underwear has become a popular, reusable alternative to pads, tampons, and menstrual cups. But plaintiffs in a class action lawsuit say Think's period underwear contains dangerous chemicals and that the company misrepresented the safety of its products. Think settled the case but admitted no wrongdoing. And that got us thinking, how safe are menstrual products? And who's keeping an eye on the companies that make and market them? To get some answers, we are speaking with Anna Pollock. She's an associate professor in the Department of Global and Community Health at George Mason University and studies the chemicals that show up in some of these products. Professor, an independent lab test detected forever chemicals, known as PFAS, in samples of the Thinks underwear that we mentioned. What are PFAS? So PFAS are chemicals that um, are in many different consumer products. They make sure that things don't stick to other things. So they've been detected in fast food wrappers, nonstick pans, uh, stain-treated furniture, and things like that. Is the vagina more susceptible to absorption of PFAS? than, say, other parts of the body? Absolutely. And that's really an important point here because um, the vagina and um, vulvar tissue is really highly permeable. And so um, either fabric or other period products that make contact um, in that region or are used internally, such as tampons, um, could deliver a higher dose of those chemicals to the body than um, than similar sorts of contact in other parts of the skin. Now, some experts have said that they are actually not concerned, right? And that if you washed the underwear, the PFAS have probably washed out and they've gone downstream. But what does your research tell us? Hmm. So I'm not an expert on whether or not washing would get rid of PFAS from these products. But what I do know is that um, these sorts of chemicals are used for their properties of of, um, not sticking. And so because of that, I would be surprised if they would wash off that rapidly. I know that in um, food pans and other sorts of things like dental floss where they've been found, they're really used for that property of non-stick. And I imagine it would be a similar sort of um, approach in these sorts of underwear products. So here's something that we have known for for a long time, and that's that tampons contain certain metals, right? Like mercury and, and dioxins from the bleaching process. Right. Beyond the specific case of Think's underwear, talk to us about tampons specifically. How safe are they? And pads even. Um, absolutely. And this is a great point. So what we know in the very limited uh, research that's been done on what chemicals are found in period products, um, a variety of different chemicals have been found. Those include phthalates, um, which are chemicals that um, are used in making plastic flexible, parabens, which are antimicrobial or things that keep mold from growing agents, um, as well as other volatile organic chemicals, as well as um, some pesticides have been detected in these products. Um, pesticides? Now, 
Yeah, uh, glyphosate, which is a, a commonly used pesticide, has been found in in some studies that have tested these okay. period products. Right. And what we know is that some of these chemicals themselves are linked with human health issues, such as um, cancer or allergic reactions or um, hormone disruption. Um, and so those are some of the concerns here with these products. But companies, they don't have to disclose the chemicals that are in pads and, and menstrual cups and tampons or in these period underwear. Is that right? Exactly. And that's another really important point here. So there is no federal law that requires ingredient disclosure. Why not? Um, you know, it's uh, for so many reasons. But I think that uh, one of the things that maybe can come out of this attention is I think a consumer demand for better ingredient disclosure. Um, the state of New York became the first state to require ingredient disclosure in period products. Um, back in 2009, they, 2019, they passed that law. Um, but as of now, there's no requirement at the federal level. And so these products go to market without um, understanding really um, or disclosure of what chemicals may be in these products. So I think wow. consumers have a right to know. I mean, tens of millions of people in, in the U.S. are using these products monthly, right? Yep. So who, and not who's responsible for, for regulating whether they're safe, just so we're clear? Um, well, so as of now, um, the, the companies themselves have, uh, they're, they're just not obligated to share all of the ingredients or even list them on the products. So consumers really aren't able to to really make informed decisions. Um, and, and what we know about those chemicals that have been detected is that they're at varying levels and in different sorts of products. And so it can be really challenging for consumers to figure out, you know, how to choose a product that might have less exposure. Um, your yeah. point about menstrual product use, individuals um, who menstruate use products for up to five years of exposure over the course of their lifetime or about 1800 days. So it's not an inconsequential amount of time. That's a lot of time. Yeah. Oh. Wow. So in your opinion, is is enough of this research being done here? Um, in my opinion, no. I think there it absolutely can be more work done in this area. And and while that's true, um, we know enough to know that better consumer protections should be put in place, even with the limited amount of information we have now. Um, so states um, have taken to passing um, ingredient disclosure laws and doing something like that at the federal level would be another step to really protect mm -hmm. uh, individuals who menstruate across the country. Sticking with research professor in science, right? We've got peer review, right? And that's a key process for checking and, and double checking that a study is valid. So talk more about how peer review works and whether period products are peer reviewed. Sure. So um, peer review, which we hold in very high esteem in science, um, is the process of of publishing our, our work and our findings. And so a, a, a handful of researchers would be asked to review something before a journal, a scientific journal would publish a study. Um, however, we don't need to rely on 
we shouldn't need to rely on peer review to ensure the safety of um, consumers when it comes to menstrual products. And I think that um, being more proactive by um, ensuring either state or federal um, proactive ingredient disclosure or additional oversight on that regard would be a far more effective than uh, the small handful of studies that we have thus far, which all show that there are chemicals in these products. And not to say that these chemicals are purposely added in many cases, although in some cases they might be and are, um, but that it's really impossible for the average consumer to know yeah. what would be in these products. So, I mean, that in mind, how worried should people be then about potential PFAS in, in these period underwear and other menstrual products? Um, I think I I like to, I prefer to not have everyone be worried. And instead, um, I do have some recommendations to help try to decrease some exposures on this standpoint. And one easy thing that consumers can do is we know that fragrances in period products add an additional type of chemicals. And so choosing products that are not fragranced, which we know are not necessary, um, in the vagina in general, mm -hmm. um, is one way that all consumers can easily reduce uh, some level of exposure. And beyond that, I think in encouraging um, the passage of regulations in terms of disclosure of ingredients um, would be another really important step to safeguard individuals who menstruate um, from these types of exposures. Um, but I personally uh, use these products um, and, you know, many people rely on them. So I I try not to fear monger in that way, but uh, yeah. to encourage folks that, yes, we we should move forward with the science, but also, yes, we do need to use these products. I appreciate that distinction. Anna Pollock is Associate Professor in the Department of Global and Community Health at George Mason University. Thank you so much. Thanks. Let's turn now to one of Professor Pollock's colleagues to discuss access to period products, which isn't a given for everyone. Jumka Gupta is a menstrual equity expert. Professor, you study something that's called period poverty. What is that? Sure, yeah. So period poverty, um, there's many definitions. One of the broadest definitions are is that period poverty is just having inadequate access to menstrual hygiene tools and education. And menstrual hygiene tools can be the products themselves, which is what my study focused on. But more broadly, it can also include things like access to uh, running water or, um, you know, sanitation facilities as well. So a very mm. comprehensive approach to period poverty. Would you say it's widespread? Um, it is widespread in the sense that... Um, According to our research with college students in the U.S., uh, which is a population that many may consider would not be impacted by uh, something like period poverty, mm -hmm. we found that um, in about 471 university-attending students in the U.S., uh, about 14% reported experiencing period poverty at some point in their lifetime. And about 10% um, reported that in the past year. Wow. That's, that's, a, that's more than I expected. Uh, well, let's talk about this particular product that uh, sparked this segment, and that's Thinks, right? It marketed 
its period underwear as affordable, Professor, because of the fact that it's reusable. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think um, I think broadly speaking, the, a lot of these sustainable products um, can be an important um, can be an important tool in addressing period poverty in terms of having the product itself. Along with that, it would be really important to look at other aspects of period poverty to ensure that, for instance, uh, those who are menstruating and are using these products uh, have access to things like running water and washing facilities, uh, uh, thinking very specifically about the unhoused populations, but even broader than that. Um, uh-huh. I think a lot of the sustainable products, another thing to think about is um, usage across different populations of menstruators. Um, it may be difficult for uh, some menstruators who may be experiencing, you know, gynecological uh, disorders like endometriosis or anything that causes pelvic pain to insert and take out Mm -hmm. products um, like the menstrual cup. We don't know. This may be something to look into. Um, Women with disabilities or other medical conditions, it may be difficult. So these are all important questions to keep in mind so that when we're talking about sustainable products that we're really keeping um, a very um, strong equity lens in mind. And as we're talking about affordability, how much on average does a period cost someone every month? Yeah, so um, I have statistics from the National Organization for Women and what they estimate, um, the most recent estimates that are from November of 2022, it's about 200 to 300 per year, so 200 to $300 per year. Mm-hmm. You mentioned those college students you were studying earlier. You also looked at the mental health impact on those students of just not having enough money to buy these products. What did you find there? Yeah, so we found um, a very strong correlation between um, those who reported experiencing period poverty and uh, depressive symptoms or symptoms consistent with depression in the past two years. So... um, those who uh, reported um, any type of period poverty in the past year were 1.8 times more likely to report con- symptoms consistent with depression. And those who reported uh, period poverty on a monthly basis reported were 2.3 times more likely to report symptoms consistent with depression. So there wow. was a strong correlation. Wow. Your research focusing on these college students, this came out in 2021. And at the time, yours was one of only a few peer-reviewed studies of period poverty. What do you think that reveals? Yeah, I mean, you're right. So, I mean, when period poverty was was studied, it was mostly outside of the U.S. Uh, At the time of the publication of the 2021 study, uh, there was another study in St. Louis with low-income women. So, I mean, I think it, I mean, number one, it reveals a strong need for more research attention to these topics. Um, Along with that is uh, more funding for um, issues such as period poverty and menstrual health in general. Mm -hmm. You think that's what needs to shift so that we can expand access to these products to more folks across the country? 
I think it's an important part of the toolbox uh, research. Also, um, I think what is really going to make the change is the policies. Um, there's uh, advocacy organizations that have been, you know, really leading the charge on the ground. Which for ones? Getting, um, a great organization that comes to mind is Period, um, period.org, that um, does really great work with um, campuses and broader populations on the issue of period poverty. There's the National Alliance for uh, Period Supplies. So there is um, there is movement on the ground. Um, the research is also an important component of this. I think also um, as we work towards um, period poverty advocacy and policy and research, we also need to um, ensure, again, that we're keeping um, equity at the center of all of these efforts. Um, yeah. In our study, uh, for instance, we found that Black and Latinx respondents um, reported more period poverty than um, students who were white. Um, so that was one mm -hmm. example of an inequity. Also, um, first generation students, um, that's the first, you know, they were the first in their family to go to college. Um, it was 20% reported period of poverty versus 10% who are not first generation. And also, 20% um, of the participants who reported being born outside of the U.S. reported mm -hmm. period of poverty versus 14%. Wow. So there's some really, um, there's some really important patterns there that are, you know, very consistent with what we see for other health topics as well. Yeah. Um, but um, we do need focused attention on the topic of period poverty and Absolutely. its mental health implications. Yeah, very consistent numbers and very upsetting. I'm so glad you're doing this work. That's Jumka Gupta, who's associate professor in the Department of Global and Community Health at George Mason University. Thank you so much, Professor. Thank you so much for having me and um, giving a platform to these really critical topics. My pleasure. This episode of Reset was produced by Linnea Dominic, and it was edited by Ethan Schwab. Find more critical health stories like this, along with all other news, politics, and culture coverage, by subscribing to our podcast. We publish episodes every day of the week and on Saturdays. That's it for Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We'll talk to you this afternoon. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.